No. <laughs> no, you just didn't do that right now. I most definitely did that right now. Buongiorno and other starting cliches. Welcome to the Flick Lab. It's a film podcast that I'd like to record in an Italian countryside orchard right about now. I'm Carri, a typical example of a failed Finnish media assistant who found work elsewhere. For example, in IT in Poland, because why not? But, you know, as long as we're talking sexuality today, the country with the world's greatest vistas. But fear not, my co-host is a straight cis male, also Finnish, master of arts in the making, Henrik. Welcome to the show. I see you called me by my name. <laughs> a clever segue into today's film. <laughs> All right. Henrik, why did we choose this film? Well, on my end, I was held by gunpoint by the main host of this podcast. So I, I guess this is a question I should actually propose to you. Yeah, well, exactly. We were in the Rovaniemi city center and I held Henrik at gunpoint and said he must call me by his name or I will. Okay, but yeah, we did choose this film because it's summertime. It's the season of the rainbow, so to speak. And of course, I jumped on the opportunity of making Henrik watch this and squirm in his existence. I, I must confess that this was a surprising candidate from you, seeing how typically in this podcast it has been so that you are the all, all rationality, zero feelings, and I'm the one on the opposite side. <laughs> I knew I would get roasted for this one in this episode. Uh-huh. It's just going to get worse from here on in. But still, I am for rationality. Uh, the main goal here is to be making your logical decisions without feelings. That being said, I am still a human being and bound by the inadequacies of our species. What would Spock say to you right now? He would say... You, you have seen Star Trek, <coughs> of God. I have, unfortunately, some of it. Maybe you are better orator to say what Spock would say to me right now. I, I, I would say that you are acting the most illogical way. By not watching Star Trek enough. <laughs> most, most definitely by not, not watching Star Trek enough and feeding to Leroy Nemo's bank account. Because Star Trek Star Trek is extremely logical thing to watch. Well, isn't it? In, in a sense. Yeah, like... I mean, it, it, it does pride itself as, as a scientific fiction. Yeah, exactly. Fiction. It doesn't even make the smallest effort to be scientific. Rather, it's just weird creatures that actually lack a hell of a lot of creativity floating in space and, I don't know, doing the human stuff. It's like, it's like uh, Bolt and the Beautiful in space. In, 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 a, in a sense, in a sense, yes. Well, but I, I would still maintain that it actually does at least 
at times try to play off with scientific theories, even though the science behind what happens in Star Trek is flimsy at best, but that's kind of a something you just have to take with you as, as long as you want to see spaceships and space battles. Yeah, I got an overdose of science fiction with my, with my ex, so I've had my share. But evidently this, even though this is a kind of an interesting subject, I guess, if a straight guy or not, but evidently this wasn't the first time you've seen this film, right? Uh, no, this is for the first time I, s- I have seen Call Me By Your Name. I, I, ha- I have known the film for quite some time now, and I have known its reputation, that being that it is extremely well-made film, and something that I should have seen oh. a while ago already, simply on the merits of, of being a self-claimed film buff, and that coming with, you know, some responsibilities to catch up on all these high-class features as they come along, but yeah, I've been slacking on my responsibilities and haven't seen Call Me By Your Name before. Well, okay. So, I guess there is no need to ask why, what made you pick this film up. <laughs> so, I'm skipping that. But, um... Well, I, I am happy that we... I am happy that we ended up covering this film in the podcast, because it did finally kind of a both force me and give me a reason to finally check up this one. The story in this just might override every other reason to pick this up on the overall, and more so for any repeated viewings, I would say. At least in my view, this is first a romantic love story, and second a gay interest film. What about you? I I do agree with your assessment, although I, I would say that the gay interest film, the second point, is extremely strong in this one. That it is. So it's a story of the summer of 1983. A 17-year-old Jewish Elio lives with his parents in Italy. Now there's Oliver, a Jewish American who comes to stay with the family for the summer. So Elio's father, a professor of archaeology, can help Oliver with his archaeology studies. And in the previous summers, according to the book, they have also had other similar visitors. And so Elio's father does help Oliver with his studies. Oliver goes home, and before he can make babies, he's abducted by aliens. And that's the movie. No, oh, yeah, just checking if Henrik is awake. I, I would say that there is also the graphic novel. Yep. Which has, ha- hasn't officially come out yet. That's why you need film adaptations. Okay, this film, to my surprise, is the third part in director Luca Guadagnino's thematic Desire trilogy, which includes I Am Love from 2009 and A Bigger Splash 2015 with Call Me By Your Name completing the trilogy. So, have you seen this? I haven't, have not. A Bigger Splash, I do know by the name, but I have made the conscious choice to skip that one. So when it comes to Lucas' filmography, I would say I'm most familiar with with his remake of Suspiria. Yeah, still looking forward to seeing that. Even more so now, since this director seems to be very high caliber, as is the cinematographer. And maybe Henrik remembers where we have already enjoyed the cinematography of the guy of this of this film. 
before in this podcast. That would be Sayampu Mukdipram. We already know this amazing cinematographer from from Uncle Boonmi, who can recall his past lives. That we do, that we do. Remembering how Uncle Boonmi was, I am a bit surprised to see him once again showing up on this podcast. Same here. Uh, happy surprise. M- most definitely happy surprise. But th- there is the factor that Uncle Boonmay in many ways is completely different kind of movie than Call Me By Your Name. So it, it would actually be interesting to hear from the cinematographer himself which one of these two styles, this extremely surreal and artistic style of Boonmay or more realistic, more traditional style of Call Me By Your Name, name, which one of these two he actually prefers himself? That would be a mega interesting question, Henrik, but I'm not so sure if from the cinematographer's or the DP's point of view that is the key question, as long as he gets to adjust his frame properly. But I mean, it's up to the editor or the director at the end of the day in what kind of a speed we're going to change from from a scene to scene or from shot to shot but i don't know uh, yeah at the very end it's uh, it's for the producers to decide that one mm. but, but sure i i do still believe that that cinematographer also kind of a has a lot of power in the way of how he composes the picture and how he decides through his camera work, kind of highlight the different aspects in the picture. That it is, and I was surprised to find that this is uh, written by James Ivory. Well, the adaptation from the novel is by James Ivory, and he was to co-direct the film with Guadagnino ever since the rights were acquired to film. They were already acquired back in 2007, so this was a long time coming. And uh, film went into development hell for several years. And there were several writers that uh, were approached, as well as directors. Apparently, Guadagnino was approached as the first choice, but he declined, citing his busy schedule. But he was then hired as a location consultant. Later, though, Guadagnino then suggested to co-direct the film with Ivory. But Ivory would co-direct only if he could adapt the screenplay and he worked on the script for nine months but uh, then Ivory stepped down as the director in 2016 so it's been kind of chaotic run and because the backers of the film didn't want to take risk of two directors in the same project you know if they would start fighting at the set or whatever the case might be Knowing so, so, some of Ivory's past work, like for example Remains of the Day, I am not that surprised to hear that Ivory himself was extremely interested in the project. Well, in that sense, yeah. Shooting took place mainly in the city of Crema, in the region of Lombardy, and Guadagnino lives in Crema, so that was an easy choice. And the film got countless of accolades for screenplay, um, directing, acting, and music, Henrik. Then there is Guananino saying that this film is a homage to the fathers of his life, his own father and the cinematic ones. And he refers to his inspirations such as Jean Renard, 
Jacques Rivre and Eric uh, Romer and Bernardo Bertoluzzi. He hopes that different people from different walks of life from different generations will see this film. And he himself does not see this film as a gay film, but more as like a film about desire. He's also reflecting his motto of living with a sense of joy. Uh, it's a French term that he's referring to this <clears throat> joie de vivre, a joy of living, used to express a cheerful enjoyment of life and exultation of spirit. This was very much a film about the first love you kind of encounter and experience in your life. The first kind of a serious love that you have. Yeah, that's an interesting talking point as well, because we already do know that, well, as far as the film depicts it, there could be like other reasons why both of the characters, at least in the book, do have sex with girls. When Oliver does arrive to the orchard, Elio is already hanging out with this girl. And so they already have a like, sexual experience, both of them. But still, this is most definitely the first proper love of Elio. At least in a sense that this appears to be... At least in the film, I myself haven't read the book. But but in the film, this this is shown to be Elio's first love, to which he is actually committed in an emotional way, extremely heavily. Yeah, in the book there's also a mention about Elio where he starts hanging out oh, with a girl and he ponders whether he's showing that just to show to Oliver that he does indeed like girls. And it seemed like a sincere comment, like Elio is kind of the narrator of the book. So I get the vibe that they would both be kind of bisexual really, but I, I don't know. Anyway, indeed, this is based on a book by Andre Asiman, or however you pronounce that. Born in Egypt in 1951 to Sephardic Jews. I also wrote the memoir Out of Egypt in 95 about his experiences of leaving Egypt during political turmoils. Has written four novels, and in 1965 the family moved from Egypt to Italy. He's a professor at the Graduate Center of City University of New York, where he teaches history of literary theory. And Asiman defines himself as sexually fluid, not uh, heterosexual or homosexual. There's actually a sequel book coming out. I'm not quite sure how sincere this release of book is going to be, in a sense that I feel that the success of the film most definitely is has steered him towards writing a sequel book, which is going to be even more interesting when you take into account the book. And the book does not simply settle on the story of the 1983 summer. It actually goes forward from that. At the end of the book, we get forward in time about 20 years, and the characters meet themselves again in, in a different circumstances. So they meet several times during the years, and Still, this Find Me appears to be based on times that are going to happen somewhere between Call Me By Your Name uh, and the final events of the Call Me By Your Name novel. Well, it's going to be interesting to see when the book finally comes out. Because there is actually, at this point, it's I've, I've understood that it's not yet 
in pre-production, but there has been rumors and thoughts about making a film sequel. Yeah, it's... Call me by your name. It's already been announced. The book is going to be out in October of this year, 2019. And I suppose the film is then gonna follow soon after. Most likely that would kind of be the logical way to do this, even though, of course, at this point in time, both of the leads are busy with other projects. So it's kind of a you have to see those projects finished before, and only after then you actually get to hear when when this Call Me By Your Name sequel is heading for production. Indeed, and who are our actors who are so hard to get in touch with nowadays, since, since they are like internationally famous and recognized actors. Well, first there is Timothée Chalamet, known for Lady Bird, Beautiful Boy, and for a small role in Interstellar, actually. But most of all, known, of course, for tonight's film. An actor whom, to my great shame, I actually haven't seen the movies where he plays kind of the major role. I'm familiar with Timothée only in, in the films where he has pay, played kind of a smaller role, like like Interstellar and Hostiles. But for example, checking out The Ladybird, which I've heard is extremely good, and which I have been meaning to check out. I, I have to say, I have been slacking once again. Yeah, and I have to, to my great shame, even admit that I don't really remember Timothée from Interstellar, but maybe it wasn't such a big role. It it wasn't. It most definitely wasn't. Yeah. And then we have, of course, Army Hammer. He played Cameron Winklevoss, which I had completely forgotten about already, in Social Network in 2010. Also did act alongside Johnny Depp in The Lone Ranger. 2013. He played as one of the leads in The Birth of a Nation from 2016, and that's about my information from Hammer. Hammer most definitely is, is kind of a finally having the breakthrough in, he, in his own career when it comes to kind of a films that you can take, take seriously. Hammer has been trying for the longest time to a- actually make himself a prominent Hollywood celebrity, he was pretty good both in the social network, even though he wasn't in a big role there, and he was also rather excellent in the Clint Eastwood's biopic J. Edgar. But after those kind of a more serious, more prestige film roles, he ended up landing in films like Mirror Mirror, and like you said, The Lone Ranger, which was notable for the fact that Despite Hammer playing the titular character, the film was advertised almost completely first and foremost with Johnny Depp's presence. And from there he landed in in the codename Uncle and the Birth of Nation, until finally kind of peeking through nocturnal animals, and now with Call Me By Your Name. So hopefully Hammer finally actually actually does manage to land himself as a serious, dramatic Hollywood actor. And, you know, by by all accounts, I guess he now finally has the chance, seeing that he's also going to appear in in the Hercule Poirot mystery Death on the Nile, which should also give him a lot of dramatic range to play off. Alright, do we have information on any other actors? Well, outside of Hammer, 
Uh, I would say the second most notable, if not even more notable actor than Hammer would be the actor playing the father, Mr. Berman, in in this film, Michael Stuhlberg, or however you pronounce the name, who has a long-running Hollywood career of variety of different roles. There is the Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water behind him. There, there is cooperation with Coen Brothers in A Serious Man. There is Spielberg and his appearance as Abe Rosenthal in The Post. So, yeah, mo- most definitely I would say that when it comes to cast of this film, Michael is the is kind of the biggest name and the name that has most clout behind him. And outside of that, I would say that Amira Kassar appearing here as Anella Perlman is also at least somewhat notable actress on her own right. She does have quite a lot of range and she does have some notable films or talk about films in her filmography uh, as well. I haven't yet managed to see the Kandisha, which should be one of those better horror movies, but I have been able to check out The Forbidden Room and Saint Laurent, both of which also raised some eyebrows when they came out, but I wouldn't necessarily recommend. Most definitely I wouldn't recommend Saint Laurent. And, well, yeah, she also does have on her the appearance in the quite troublesome and all-around hard-to-talk-about feminist drama film Anatomy of Hell. So there is at least one strike, I would say, in her resume. All right. Well, then let's talk for a while more about James Ivory. So he had uh, a long partnership with Ismail Merchant. It actually has a place in the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest partnership in independent cinema history, I guess, which tells you a lot about the entertainment business circles. I don't know. But um, perhaps noteworthy as well that he is homosexual, which just might have had something to do with why he was selected or wanted to be selected as the screenwriter. He has been nominated for an Oscar three times. There's a room with a view, there's Howard's end, and then there is the the remains of the day. Finally did win an Oscar for Call Me By Your Name, but not as a director, but as the best adapted screenplay. Which is quite a shame, actually. It's kind of hilarious, in a weird way. I mean, of course this is a big big success, but um, interesting how it turned out. I don't think he minds, though. Hopefully he doesn't mind, though. Once again, it's kind of one of those Oscars that that might also be kind of a fuck you to the man. <laughs> kind of the same way how Martin Scorsese's Oscar from Departed might also be kind of the academy simply fucking with the guy. Or it could be just that, okay, we did get it wrong several times in the past, but here is your prize anyway for your life's work. Yeah, which we give you for the remake you made, and not all that original stuff that you have filmed before. Yeah, it's pretty weird. But uh, yeah, great screenplay it is, or adaptation, and director is indeed known for the aforementioned uh, 
It's just kind of an international title. Yo soy el amor and the bigger splash. And call me by your name. And is also the director of Suspiria. This was also made. Suspiria was made with the fucking amazing DP. Sion P. Mokdibram. Alright. Scene by scene. I guess that it would be scene by scene the next. Okay. Our listeners are not getting any younger. There's that. Let's hurry up here. Okay, so we start with the starting titles. And I have to say that these DGs are some of the most unreadable I've ever seen. They are written with this handwritten font and I really cannot figure out what it says. Yeah, you you kind of can read it. I mean, it's, it's not completely unreadable. But of course, the yellow handwritten font on top of what is photographs of ancient sculptures, it that does actually make it quite hard to make out what has been written at times. Especially since that the font kind of does mix up with the photographs that are in the background. It truly does. Try to read Sayonpi Mukti from, from the titles. But okay, enough bashing of that. And we start with uh, Timote, actually. And here we establish already, immediately, that... He does indeed have a re- relationship with a girl. I like the titles though, Somewhere in Northern Italy. And this is the moment where Oliver arrives. Kind of our antagonist. <laughs> antagonist, really? <laughs> in a way, we, we will get to that later. Shakes hands of the couple, of the owner of the property. So, once again... Oliver, the student of archaeology, is going to live the summer with the archaeology professor in northern Italy. Lucky guy. I mean, except for the fact that, just like in Spain, Italy has this very damp and cold flats, but in the summertime I think it will be okay. Yeah, I don't know what kind of a traineeship Oliver has managed to land for himself, but the dude really has locked it out with some sweet, sweet luxury here. Oh my god, yes. Would I really give almost anything to have this kind of a place to spend my summer? Boy, oh boy. Me, yeah, me too. I mean, usually, usually when, you, when you get these exchange transfer projects behind you, in the at least in the Finnish Academy, it means that you simply get stuffed into some kind of a joint housing and in the end forgotten into some university. And here Oliver managed to land himself what practically is a mansion. Would it mean that at some point we really have to just pay it up and do the flick lap tour to Italy? I, I guess it, it, it first and foremost it would mean that we at some point we should find a way to monetize the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I hope you didn't become a co-host to... <laughs> To, to, to earn some revenue, because podcasting is like the worst format to, format to pick for that one. Uh, I, I, I was promised fortunes and models, god damn it. <laughs> There's the call for uh, dinner, and I love this bell, because we have had this cowbell stuff. Also at our summer house, which does not have electricity. It's so traditional, and I just, god, I love our summer house. It's heaven on earth. Maybe not as heavenly as Italy, but still, when you're swimming in your own beach and then your grandmother is uh, doing the ding, ding, ding with the bell and it's the sign that it's 12 o'clock and it's time to eat some 
smashed potatoes and and sausage, as it happens. I, I guess with all this ownership of property, I can't get you interested in communism. <laughs> well, I'm not really pro-ownership. I, I think in most cases that that just brings humanity a lot of harm and worry for no reason at all. And we already have so many copies of the same thing. For, for example, for God's sakes, every goddamn household has a vacuum cleaner, at least in Finland. And you, you really don't need to do that. How often do you use vacuum cleaner? Well, I guess it depends. If you're obsessive compulsive, then you probably use it every day. So, okay, but you can pick it from a shared closet. So you don't, you don't need hundreds of vacuum cleaners in an apartment building. Just saying, things like that. Sharing economy, great thing. Wouldn't necessarily be possible in Finland seeing how extremely bad we are in sharing altogether. That it is. Yeah, that that would have the uncomfortable element of actually going to see another person and actually having to say words to that to that person. That is goddamn dangerous. Now we have the first scene meal together and Oliver is talking about opening a bank account. The couple is kind of confused or the family is kind of confused why he would need a bank account, but apparently that's very important and it's important in the novel as well. During the summer... In the film, the bank account really is not touch upon after this point. Oliver visits the town a couple of times to follow up on... I am not entirely sure what. I, I guess it's... Would it be the printing of his book? But he has mm-hmm. to visit the town a couple of times during the film because of his book. And that is why he has to visit the town... But when it comes to the bank account, this is the first and last time I remember actually the bank account being addressed. You know, in these scenes there's so many things going on that are majorly expanded upon in the books. So we just do not have time for everything. But I really do love how it's been adapted in, in this film. It kind of brings together all the main points and still... Even though there's a lot of things that are left unsaid, if you see this like more times, I think you can pick up on the nuances of the characters and what was really meant behind this or that word or how it affects the 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 feelings of the characters or the future situations. And the book actually starts with this whole later thing. You know, Elio is complaining about Oliver always saying later when he's going somewhere. And it uh, already happens in the piazza when they are having coffee or whatever. And Ilio is convinced that he's going to go with Oliver to wherever he's going. And he just says, oh, later. And he goes on his way. And Ilio is left completely confused. <laughs> and in the book, he describes the whole later thing being as kind of a harsh and curt and dismissive way of speaking with the veiled indifference of people who may not care to see or hear from you again so throughout the book and at least throughout the book there are these things that kind of do irritate Elio but as the story progresses he actually starts to understand where they are coming from well he never learns to like the later but for example in the book we spend a whole lot of time 
or Elio spends a whole lot of time explaining that there are several situations where Oliver gives this very steely-eyed, uncaring, or even hostile look at Elio. But as it progresses, uh, we learn what it's really about. And I'm not sure if I should spoil the book in this podcast, so maybe not. That's not what we're about at the end of the day. But you can spoil to me what was the bank account all about? Why was it so important? Actually, I don't even know. But I, like you, I just assume that it has to do with the book. Okay. Ilion Oliver entered this local bar in the town center, I believe. And Ilion is surprised to see that already Oliver seems perfectly at home at this place. Like with everything Oliver does. Also, once again, a major theme in the book. Like it, it, everything seems to come very easy for him. He just walks in and everything is as clear as day. And even if Elio perceives something being kind of uncomfortable, for Elio, it's just very easy to process. It's just this later attitude for everything. And then we have this volleyball scene. The film is more open about showing Elio's affection openly. Yeah when everybody is watching, whereas in the book he goes to great, great efforts to conceal and kind of hide this whole relationship, or that he would in any way be interested about Oliver. But uh, And he does this specifically to, to avoid uh, his parents noticing this relationship. At the end of the day, in the book he fails, but in the film he even talks with his parents pretty much about about Oliver. But so how, how does the book end compared to the film? Does his parents ever actually come aware that he has affections towards Oliver? Also, the parents seem to have understood that they have something deeper going on pretty early on. So, he ha- so at the end of the day, as much as he tries, he just cannot hide his affection. So everybody... I'm not sure if the mother ever finds out. It's the same in the film. The father explains that the mother probably doesn't know about it. But the father I, figured it out. Yeah, I, I took it that moment that in the film that that scene meant that the father himself has had a similar type of relationship with someone in the past and that would be the thing that the mother doesn't know because when it comes to the film I kind of... A, got the impression that the mother was the first one to pick up on Elio's affection towards Oliver. There's two ways, two ways to read that. You're meaning the scene where the mother tells to Elio that Oliver just told her that Oliver cares about or likes Elio. I, I kind of mean all those scenes, even pretty early on in the film where the mother starts to give Elio the, these glances. Like there is very subtle moments throughout the film where the mother kind of gives Elio a look every now and then. Elio himself doesn't even notice this, but I always yep. took those looks kind of that the way that 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 is the mother actually understanding what is going on between Elio and Oliver. Yeah, it seems that the mother is more aware in this film than maybe in the book. I I grant you that one. You know, there's quite a lot of going on in this film, as you see. There is, and like you, like you said, it, it is kind of a film where 
once you know how the story progresses on the second viewing, you kind of you can pick up a lot more on all these subtle details, like how something was said or hand on a shoulder and stuff like that. Yeah, it was kind of a special experience for me to read actually the entire book in one sitting yesterday and then immediately watching the film afterwards. And when you watch the film, you know, all of these details that you've spent reading on for many hours and then you watch the film, everything is coming at you like with rapid fire speed. And it's at some points it feels like almost ridiculous how fast everything is moving. But without the context of the book, I would never think it like that, probably. But it's true that in some film adaptations, it seems that there's just way, way too much detail, way too much going on. Maybe something that comes to mind is Norwegian Wood. I read the book first and then I watched the film and I was actually laughing on several occasions because it felt so absurd how fast things were progressing or maybe also how unnatural the situations felt on the screen but it was never funny on the book i'm not sure if i would see it in any way funny had i not read the book before seeing it so is is that a case where the film makes some aspects of the book more clearer and that is why you found them funny or is it simply that the film mishandles the points of the book and this way kind of changes the tone to opposite of what was meant in the book. Well, it called me by your name. I, I'm not sure if I saw anything funny. It was just coming at the fast speed. If you're talking about Norwegian wood, then... That was precisely what I was referring okay. to. Okay. It's been a long time, but in general, it felt that some of the scenes that worked really well in the book just do not translate at all well uh, to the screen. So... But I also enjoyed the film, so it was kind of a funny. Maybe it just felt like a little bit comedic, some of these romantic moments. It's just one of those situations where when it's on the screen, it it just looks silly. Okay, because I, I, I ask because I have been meaning to try to look up the film and see it once I have a little bit more time. Yeah, I can wholeheartedly recommend Okay, so it's not a bastardization of the book. I would say not at all, no. Just a different experience. Or, and with probably more intentional humor that just comes from direct translation of the scenes to the film. Okay. I'm actually really looking forward to hearing your experience of the film because maybe these will not be hilarious scenes to you at all if you don't read it. We'll see. Yeah, maybe we can touch upon the subject at some time. Right now the schedule is so goddamn full that I don't know whenever I have a chance to watch a f- another film besides the ones that we have to do for this podcast. But, you know, if I ever manage to have the time and see the film, I promise to let you know. Excellent. So, and now Elias playing the piano to Oliver at 23.55, at least where I'm going. Took a lot of effort for Timothée to learn to play the piano or at least these particular tunes and the guy is playing what three different versions of the same tune so i guess i have to raise my hat for the young guy for pulling this off as well you most definitely 
I feel that you have to sing how the tunes themselves are not easy at all to play. And I also like the fact that film actually has the actor really playing the tunes and forces the actor really to learn how to play play these tunes instead of simply having it pre-recorded somewhere and playing it in a playback and having the actor to pretend that he is playing the piano like it often goes in, in lesser movies. And it's always so obvious. It is, and it's kind of made double the hilarious by the fact that quite often that there is a number of films where where they they do it this way instead of having the actor to really play the instrument and then the film it kind of calls a special notion to those those scenes those piano playing scenes and it makes it extremely obvious kind of even more obvious what is going on behind the scenes and that no one is really playing anything and it's just a pre-recording so it is one of the very central parts of the book once again is is hanging around uh, this little pool where Oliver at 26 minutes is reading some of his own work and he says that it doesn't make any sense to him and then Elio says that maybe it did make sense to you at the time when you wrote it. And Oliver says that that's one of the kindest things that anyone has ever said about me or something like that. And once again, a pretty big plot point in the book that changes their relationship ever more warmer. And we got to this dancing scene, nightly dancing scene at 27 minutes. So Marcia is is trying to spend some time with Elio or Elio, but his all attention is concentrated on Oliver's dancing, and he does make these facial expressions that really make it very clear that he is very sad about the fact. Whereas again, I I would feel that in the book he would be more conservative about showing his emotions because he doesn't want anything to know that anything is going on. But yeah, maybe nobody's watching. Elio joins the dancing. And then there is the naked swimming scene, or at least what is a naked swimming scene in the book by the water. She makes the point that maybe Elio is spending time with her because he's mad at Chiara. Elio doesn't admit it. Once again, this pretty much goes unnoticed in the film perhaps, but next morning when Oliver is opening the boiled egg, which seems to be not so much boiled actually, it's made us a huge notion how every morning he tries to open the egg by himself, but he just cannot do it because he's an American or something like that. So then somebody else takes care of the egg for him. But here he just does it by himself in a pretty uncultivated fashion. Also in the book, it spends quite a lot of time of explaining how Elio is kind of trying to draw attention away from his affections by trying to match up one of the girls with Oliver. It happens also here, but it's over much sooner. And in both versions, Oliver is kind of pissed about him trying to give uh, any kind of assistance on the matter. And since I keep speaking on about the book as well, maybe we can go through the main differences perhaps of, of those two. So in the film, Oliver wakes up Elio by the pool and not vice versa, as in the book. That's 
one thing and then there's no excavation in the shores or how would you say it when they're digging out some of those artifacts from the water yeah i, I took it also it's some kind of a underwater excavation in the book elio also does his very best as mentioned to hide his affection and in the film elio is way more easier to read for example in the book he would never ask about oliver's whereabouts to not reveal his infatuation and in the book when elio buys the book to the girl a little bit later on in the film where we are now going she gets angry quick and wants to know why he bought it for her already kind of being aware of something going on between elio and oliver so that kind of triggers something in her and in the film he just buys a book and then they happily kiss so some plot points have to be skipped of course it's already kind of a long film but i have to say already that it never made me bored in in any way it really this two hours goes by really fast at least for me going by your synopsis of the book it almost sounds like that in the book elio is even more worse in hiding his affections towards oliver even though in the book he would try even harder could be also in the book it's explained finally that oliver actually does figure out elio's affection like during the first week of his stay so pretty quickly and in the book elio asks oliver to leave his swimming trunks as a memento when he leaves but in the film he asks him to leave the jacket but sounds like all and all it is a pretty faithful adaptation of the book. most most definitely and i would say that the film does a way better version of the whole story than the book because when it comes to the book it goes through the the whole 1983 summer stuff but then it actually carries on to a i think it's almost a complete chapter where where elio follows oliver outside of this property and they go together to rome so they spend and hang around in the city and they join some kind of a party and like in the film then elio pukes and somewhere down the line they separate but then it cuts a couple of years later and they meet again and then 20 years later after the original meeting and their lives are completely different but they still have this this melancholic connection to the past that they just can't get rid of and i felt that it felt a little bit dragged maybe unnecessary why do i need to know this i mean i like how the film ends i'm curious to know how the hell you're going to make this interesting with a sequel though i guess we'll see i guess it says something about me that i didn't even remember that elio and oliver had girls in the film for god's sakes well and it's, it's in no way easy to pick plot point in the film they just kind of are there yeah and the film as well as the book they capture the countryside just so infuriatingly well i mean the vibe is there the vibe is there you just really you are there when you're watching this and uh, timothy chalamet can pull off those yearning eyes so so well and i believe that that's one of the big things that for which people were thinking that he would definitely should get a nomination and should even win an oscar there's nothing unbelievable about the relationship and, and and the way they perform i think it's i think it's incredibly genuine 
from two guys that are still straight. Just pulled off amazingly well. And that it is. That was also kind of a my one of my major points and pros when it came to this film is precisely the acting and the chemistry between Timothy and Arnie. And the fact that it, like you said, it really does feel natural in every way throughout the film. It does. And some funny filming moment stories. There was a moment when director who asked uh, Timothy and Army to test drive their kissing a little bit. So they were just, okay, well, let's just get on with it. And then the director just left the scene and just left them kissing there and they were still going. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that is commitment or what that actually is, but it does work <laughs> on the screen. Yeah, it does. I think we're jumping a bit today from scene to scene, but I guess that's okay. There is the infamous beach scene. So naturally, when they were thinking about the scene, they weren't sure if they, if that's, that would actually work at all. First of all, the director was contemplating of leaving the entire scene out of the film. But then they did film it, and then they did leave it in the final product. Guadagnino had huge reservations about it. And he was struggling with the idea that you could possibly masturbate yourself with the fruit and the peach. But so he grabbed the peach and he tried it and he said that it actually works. <laughs> so then he went to Timote as well and he said that, uh, oh, and I also tried it and it seems to work quite well. So apparently it does. The things you do for a film. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So do you also have in your notes a notion of how many peaches exactly did the production crew use throughout the filming process? I wish no mention. I guess that's once again one of those deep dark secrets of Hollywood which will surface like after the next 20 years. Or how you can reach an orgasm with a peach in like 15 seconds. I guess in that at, at that point you kind of have to admit that you simply have a problem. <laughs> like, like that's that's not natural in any way. Yeah, I know. This film's always shortening the sex scenes. Of course, it doesn't aim to be. And also, the director didn't want this to be in any way concentrated on overly sexual scenes. But you know, you just don't reach this point with a pitch in fifteen seconds. I have to say. And that that sounds like coming from the experience. <laughs> <clears throat> No comment on that. <laughs> so they finally get to the piazza, the square, I would say the main square of the city, or what is probably used as a town in this film, anyway. If I would have any gripes about this film, and this is where it would be, perhaps. I guess it's always up to interpretation. But yeah, I like the fact that now that Timothy at 48 and 15 seconds... Is set on the right side of the screen and uh, further on the other side of this this fence. Oliver is there at a distance, kind of giving the viewer, I guess, the implication that they have distance between themselves, which they indeed do have. But this is also the moment where Timothy is coming clean, not directly 
kind of indirectly, but still, you know, it's dead obvious what he is talking about. I, I kind of would have liked, perhaps, to see more of the facial expressions during such a confession, because now you see none of it, you just see the back of Timote, and they both are having sunglasses, so you get no really emotional expressions from them whatsoever, except how they're talking. And, well, could be a situation of, well, we're in a tight shooting schedule here, was it like only five weeks in which this was all shot? That could be. But I wouldn't have mind close-ups without sunglasses. Now that you mention it, I kind of have to agree with you on that one. It is, um, see, seeing how this is kind of the em- emotional high point of the story in a sense that this is where they finally, for the first time, they speak out about their feelings. And like you said, Elio finally comes clean. Yeah. It is a bit, a bit of a shame that there really is no close-ups on the facial expressions during this scene. And the fact that you can't, act, like you said, you can't see the faces at all. Elio is being shot from the behind and Oliver on his part is such a long way from the center of the picture that he almost completely, or his facial expressions kind of are lost on the distance and blend into the background. Yeah, kind of interesting choice, I have to say. It's a kind of a, you would say it's kind of interesting that they kept this one in this film, that they are stopping by by this old lady who sells whatever it is, apples or something, or peanuts. or So they ask from the lady to have some water to drink. And then they just carry on their journey. You know, it's an extremely tight movie, I would say. But this is, uh, I don't remember this from the book, and I don't see very much its significance, except in the sense to, you know, to give you more of this Italian countryside vibe. And then they do go to the kind of a mecca of Helio, the place where he reads all his books all summer long by this river, or was it? what is it, like a pond? It is some kind of a river or a stream, and I'm not completely sure which. And they lay down on the grass, and just like in the book, it's Oliver playing with the lips of Elio, and it just goes on from there. It's kind of a very, very playful first kiss with all this tongue shit, and then getting on with it. So the chemistry is kind of there. It's funny. Yeah, to me, this is this was kind of the point where... The film finally won me over. Oh really? Please tell me more. How? Well, I I must confess that originally I kind of came into this movie maybe in a bit wrong, coming from extremely hectic week and being somewhat tired when I started watching this film. Mm. And I somehow didn't completely get into the movie originally when I started watching this. I kind of... Uh, I'm ready to count a lot of that into simply me being tired when when I started watching the film, but somehow I just didn't connect with what I was seeing, and I dare to say even felt that the that the first half an hour was was boring when I originally saw the film, and this was kind of the point where I the film finally connected with me. And okay. I finally got into the mood of the film. Okay, yeah. Once again, I would say that it's easier to straight away connect with the book 
because obviously it gives you so much detail right off the gate. But uh, yeah, maybe here it takes a little bit more time to connect the dots and feel it. I can see that. Yeah, I, I'm not going to vouch for that fact, since like I said, this is something that very deeply can simply be my... kind of be me failing the movie and me failing as an audience member, but to me, kind of this this river scene was the scene where I finally <coughs> found the movie, so to say, and found the atmosphere that the movie was trying to convey. For me, it might be the factor that at this point, for both of the characters, the quote-unquote secret was out of the bag, so to speak. They both became extremely open about their feelings towards each other. And maybe that was why that kind of became the special moment for me when watching the film. And why at that point I finally finally connected with the movie. Yeah, okay. Elio has a nosebleed. Uh, in the film it kind of comes out of the blue, but in the book there's kind of a reason for it. What is the reason in in the book given to well, the Yeah, you know, I feel kind of conservative here about the book, but uh, let's spoil everything. So <laughs> in in the book it's um like Oliver is touching uh, under the table the leg of Elio. And the way I understood it is that this kind of a launches some kind of a I don't know, panic attack, but this feeling and then it just brings the nosebleed, which is kind of weird. The age-old anime effect? Really? Is it an age-old anime effect? Well, it, it has done as a joke in God knows how many animes and mangas, where, for, for example, there is somewhat perverted character who finally gets to see a woman's underwear and immediate nosebleed follows. Okay, so maybe they wanted to avoid that in the film adaptation. I, I could I, I could very well see why you would want to avoid that. It, it, if that is the way how it is in the book, I must say I'm somewhat surprised. <laughs> okay, interesting. And Oliver leaves, leaves the table and comes to check that everything is okay. Gives a little massage on the legs. And there you go with those Ilios turned on eyes. I must say <laughs> in, that in, in the film... The whole whole feet massage looks looks kind of like a torture. Like I, I I don't know if 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 it was supposed to be sensual sensual and if that's the way how it is framed in the book. But but you know the way I saw it in the film, it almost looked like Oliver is actually hurting Elio. It seemed like half and half or something, enjoying it but also hurting. And that is called sadomasochism. <laughs> And then there is the scene where the mother confronts Elio, I guess, in a way, and explains that uh, Oliver definitely likes you. But I'm not reading more into it. I just feel like that that they like each other. That's all that the mother knows at this point. I could be wrong. Who knows at the end of the day? But as you mentioned, he does give these little glimpses here and there, looking like she has the mother's instinct. That's uh, at least how I took it. And just like in the book, <clears throat> again at one hour and four minutes mark, Elio is once again waiting for Oliver to appear, and he's not appearing. There's a lot of this waiting and kind of this torture 
for example, when is it now? Shortly here. Well, yeah, that there are moments of long waiting and longing to get back to Oliver in an intimate setting, but it's not happening quite yet. Now, just like in the book, Elio is on the bed without a shirt, kind of wishing that Oliver would come into the book, come come into the room, like, please, please, please enter my room, but then he just closes the door. In the film, it's like this, that he just says that he's a traitor, traitor, and it's made into a kind of a funny scene, at the, uh, kind of a giving a little bit of this um, levity to the scene, which is great. Now, Marcia and Elio meet somewhere in the town, and he gets the book for Marcia. There it goes. No emotional hassle at this point, like in the book. And they open up to each other. She just doesn't want to be emotionally hurt. Also interesting because this kind of their relationship is kind of reflecting on the whole Oliver-Elio thing. Here Marcia is taking the hit, and the Elio-Oliver thing, Elio is taking the hit. And the girls suffer very much in this film. Now that you mention it, it, it is quite an interesting point. I, I myself, I missed that one when I w- watched the film. But yeah, the the way how the dudes treat the women really is kind of kind of a parallel how how Oliver treats Elio. Yeah, followed by again one of those weird sex scenes in films where they are almost dressed up completely and then having an orgasm in about almost nothing. But at at least on this scene the, in the film, the whole. 15 second orgasm is actually played out as an embarrassing event. <laughs> yeah. And it, it, it's not something that is tried to be played off as normal. And now Elio is writing the message to Oliver to slip under his door. Once again, a big point in the book. It spends a little bit more time on the. He's making like five different versions of the message that he's going to write. And finally, settles on the version that we see on the film and still gets this grow up i'll see you at midnight message and once again the book kind of endlessly is trying to decrypt the message with elio like what does it really mean does it mean like grow up i will see you at midnight and i we will talk this through one this is ridiculous we're not going to continue this relationship or is it like more like a playful and we'll maybe we'll have some more fun during midnight. I must confess that um, in the film, the grow up was kind of a weird sentiment. I I myself like Elio in in the book. According to you, I also was kind of, kind of a wondering what exactly that grow up was supposed to mean. I suppose it just had something to do with that. Oliver feels like everything is stable and and fine. And that he, that uh, Elio shouldn't give so much energy of his thoughts on on kind of trying to decrypt the whole thing because everything is fine. And we kind of get it by the end of the book. But for a long time, it book kind of gives you the idea that it could go both ways. But at the end of the day, Elio just seems to read his signals completely wrong. But maybe this was kind of a like a playful hit, like, come on. It's fine. Could of course be. I myself am no master of underdoor messages, so what do I know? Oh, but didn't you live in the 80s, man? 
Spiritually, I'm still living the 80s. Do you remember anything of the 80s? Was it like this slipping messages to your mom under the door? <laughs> I'm pushing weird balls at your direction. Well, I do remember what it was in the late 1600s. When it was the great famine in Finland and cannibalism was all time high. Yeah, I remember those very vividly. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember those like it was yesterday. <laughs> But I guess that's how it always goes with memory. You end up forgetting all those happy and carefree free times when you and the world around you was innocent and and you end up remembering on, only the harrowing years that made you the dead inside husk of a man that you are today. Mm-hmm. Funnily enough, I would say that the most erotic scene of the film is when uh, Ilio is having some fun with Marcia on the top of the building in the, at the attic, I believe. And that's kind of, yeah, we got some titties. And other things that come, comes to your mind from being emotionally dead husk. <laughs> yeah, and then the, the gay couple comes to the property to chat something about, oh, I don't know, archaeology or something. Also in the book, perhaps it's kind of a nice touch just before Elio and Oliver meet at midnight to get the confirmation that the family is extremely fine with homosexuals. I don't know if it's necessary, but it's there. And Elio plays piano. Well, it does kind of set up the parents' liberal attitudes, which do play off in the end of the film. When they confess to Elio that they both have kind of known about also, I guess, Elio's bisexuality, but still, you know, his homosexual cravings throughout the film. Yeah, and then they meet at midnight, and starch and... Elio is extremely nervous, and this, this just plays pretty much like the entire film, basically, just like the book, played by the book, and they play games with the <laughs> legs, legs touch, and then it goes from there. But then we see this, there is this uh, call me by your name and I'll call you by mine thing, but after the night in the following morning, it seems that there is a bit of a distance between them, also happens in the book, and... It goes something like this, that Elio is not quite sure if this was happening, maybe maybe this was happening too much for Elio, or maybe it was kind of weird for Elio, because he had all these fantasies about how it would turn out, and then it wasn't exactly like he pictured it to be. Uh, something like this. And then he kind of feels dirty about the situation for a little while but also realizes that he will probably get these cravings back again after a moment, which he does. And so, no big deal. But uh, I like the related scene. <laughs> Maybe the funniest scene in the whole film, where he just goes into his room, says to put off his pants, and just like in the book, he just says that, well, I'm not sure if I'm feeling like it, but I can't resist the notion of this guy saying to pull off his pants, so he does, and then just notices it good. You're hard again, so that's a good sign. <laughs> and it closes the door. So everything's fine. I, I must co confess that I found that scene a bit weird in, when, I, when I saw it in the film. <laughs> I agree. I remember thinking like, what the fuck is this guy doing? But then I read the book and I felt that in the slower context, it 
made more sense. <laughs> Here it's weird. And there he goes again with his later. They meet in the... Uh, well, Elio follows Oliver to the town and they talk it through if there was anything weird or if I've made you made you feel weird and it's not like that and Elio makes the notion that oh you're not gonna like get into trouble and but he knows exactly what Oliver means but he just kind of avoids the whole conversation in that way by saying that that you're not gonna get in trouble something that if you want to look for scenes that are kind of dragging the film a little bit there's the scene where we are talking about making tortei kramashi in the kitchen. And they spend like five seconds on that. But it's not a big deal. Kind of gives, gives you the vibe again, once again, where we are, what's happening there. And then we have the goddamn peach scene. Have to say that unfortunately, Henrik, I haven't tried it. I don't think it would work. But apparently they tested it scientifically and it seems to work. First of all, seems to be kind of a challenge to fit one's thing into this. But whatever. Yeah, well, you know, when it comes to when it comes to fucking edible foods, I I can you know if if you are interested, I can direct you towards the Finnish pork culture and so, some of the weird videos that has been made there. <laughs> I don't know if I dare to re- request such. <laughs> okay, let's see. One thirty-seven oh nine is when the masturbation starts. You know, we are all about science in this podcast. <laughs> and ends at 1.37.25. So what does it make it? Like 20 seconds. <clears throat> That's... Well, I, I, I have to fault the movie here. For, for, for not, not, not clearly showing us exactly how fast Elio's hand is going on during this moment. Which, of course, harms our sciences here. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I need goddamn statistics on the inertia. <laughs> I feel that in the film, Elio is more awkward about when Oliver comes to the scene. Yeah, well, why and, wouldn't you be awkward? <laughs> yeah, of course you would be. <laughs> but um, something that might be completely missed in the film is the fact that when Oliver does find the peach, well, just like in the film, Oliver kind of tastes what what's stored inside. My God, this is kind of weird. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, this, this is one of the weirdest moments in the film. <laughs> But in the book, I kind of like the fact that it made it into such a context that, according to Elio, it was kind of the sweetest thing that everybody would ever do to him. That somebody is <laughs> ta- taking his semen from from a peach. Oh my god! Because it was juxtaposed with something like Elio had offered something like in a social situation to someone and they would be like spitting it out and so people would be kind of uh, not too friendly towards him but here uh, Oliver is going like the extra mile to to do this so this is why he this is why Elio cries at this moment not because he's leaving but because he's actually <laughs> so nice to him and they talk about where in in, in this goddamn little summer extravaganza Oliver 
was starting to get a, get aware when uh, Elio was infatuated with Oliver, and the chemistry is amazing. I like the shirt for Oliver from Elio, and they're playing their word game, call me by your name stuff here. And then Elio meets the girlfriend Marcia, and he doesn't know really what to answer to her, like he's been away for th three days to fucking Oliver, so perhaps not the girl of the dreams for him. Then can you know, being away three days, it's not that big of a deal. I know, right? Uh, it's it's it, the 80s. Yeah, it's, it's, you're, you, yeah, you're not using not... WhatsApp. <laughs> <laughs> but it, uh, even without WhatsApp, it's it's not like, you know, be, being gone for three years. <laughs> so... <laughs> not a big deal. Oliver is leaving with the bus. Elio joins. I had completely forgotten about this, that Elio actually joins. But it goes differently than in the book, where in the book they go into the city of... Rome, I think only, whereas here they go like hiking in the mountains and stuff, but also to city center, I believe, to have a drink. And it's later, and there he goes. What do you think about this song that plays in the during the hiking scene? I kind of just missed the song. Like I didn't pay that much of an attention to it. Well, it it was something that was in the background, and I didn't really even recognize it that strongly. The, if I would have to kind of pinpoint one song from the soundtrack, it would be the one that plays during the closing credits. I believe this artist gave like three original songs for the film. Which is quite a lot for one film, actually. You Usually you are happy if you get one. And right. that, yeah, and even that would be kind of from the all the artists that they take part in your production. Usually in film you kind of... Uh, you either have to that or then it's just a trend in film that you use already existing songs. Exactly. But Elio pukes Henrik and... Uh, that that he does. And it's, a, it, it, it's a notable moment in the film. <laughs> and it is in a sense that Oliver helps Elio to the water fountain and even after that is willing to kiss Elio right away. Well, there is fresh puke, and who knows, maybe it has peach in it. <laughs> like, like th th that is not the most gross and weirdest moment in the film. Oh, yeah? No, I, I would say that the original peach scene kind of takes the cake. <laughs> and at 1.51, it's the very emotional leaving of Oliver to the train. Elio, obviously isn't a big fan of this moment but Oliver kind of he's unsure about this whole thing what was what kind of feelings were left for this guy of this whole experience and whether he, it seems like he's contemplating whether he should have gone gone with it or not as he puts his hand on his face gives the last look and leaves Elio goes to the payphone to call his mom to pick him up and he completely breaks down. Okay. Is this the moment to discuss the age? I guess I, it is. I guess this is as best, best as any moment, really to touch upon the subject. Okay. So I will break this into three categories about the whole age of consent factor. First, the age of the characters. Elio is 17 and Oliver is 24. 
and the age of the actors. Uh, Timote is 21, whereas Army Hammer is 30. And then there is the third factor, how old do the actors look in character. My estimation would be Elio 17 and Oliver something like 30. What's your take? I, I, I would be with you on that one. Like, yeah. Army really does not look any younger than he actually is in the film. True, true that. Alright, so now that since I have pulled down into my system the entire wine bottle, let's talk about how this thing is that that Timothée looks younger than his age and Army looks older than his age, I would argue. Is this a problem? The looks? I don't think no. I think no. The looks well, themselves. Well, it wasn't for me. Like, I... I... It, it didn't trouble me when watching the film. And to be honest, I didn't even pay that much eye to the whole, whole thing. Then again, I'm, I've come to understand that, for example, Reddit is on the opposing side on the subject. Could be. There was just a very interesting discussion on Reddit that I myself ran across. And it's asking the question if it's appropriate, even in the in the books and the films universe, the age difference of six years, 17 and 24. Is this acceptable behavior? Okay, let's see. Timothée or Elio in this film is, I believe, an Italian. And then Army Hammer is playing Oliver, who is supposed to be an American. And in America, as usual, the situation is kind of convoluted, so... You have several states where the age of consent legally is 18. You have some states that where the age is 17. Some states where it was 16. So, but yeah, he's coming from a culture where it could be seen as not even legal to have this kind of a relationship if you really want to get into it. I don't know. Honestly, I don't know, Henrik, how to even approach this subject. This is far from easy, you know. In a way, in, in Finland, the line has been drawn to 16. Like, again, in Finland, it has been stated that the age of consent is is in 16. There There is some variations that can come into play, if I remember correctly, in special cases, but those are extremely rare and and usually and te- tend to demand an acceptance from the system side. So, overall, technically, in 99% of the cases, age of consent is in 16. And there is one measurement which you can actually use in this situation, and that, in a way, might be even a better measurement than, than you know, counting when you hit puberty. Yeah, the age of consent in Finland is is indeed 16 by the section 6, sexual abuse of a child section, which states that a person who has sexual intercourse with a child younger than 16 years of age shall be sentenced for sexual abuse of a child to imprisonment for at most four years. Uh, But then again, in, uh, I believe, in the majority of the countries... The age of consent, surprisingly, in Europe is 14, meaning that you don't even need to hit the puberty to be at the age of consent with a fully grown adult person. 
which came as a surprise to me. I'm not sure how much of an appropriate discussion this is regarding the film, but since this has been ra raised around the goddamn film, then let's talk about it. So, is their relationship problematic? Well, in the book, it goes into great lengths to explain to the reader that Oliver checks on countless occasions that Elio is okay, that we're going forward with this whole situation. Whereas Elio is the one always pushing it forward as much as he can when they finally, you know, meet eye to eye on everything and tell about their feelings. But then again, Henrik, should Oliver be kind of the more mature one and just just stop the play at once or not i don't know it's 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 kind of a extremely tricky question especially when coming from the film side usually i myself i'm i'm a stricter for for the age of consent i myself i draw the line there I am more accepting once the age of consent has been reached. But Henrik, as as you mentioned, or as we have noticed, that the the setting of the age of consent seems to be completely arbitrary. So it differs from country to country. Let's go to like countries of Middle East or Arabic countries. Well, that's kind of a more extreme end of the spectrum. There, you just need to get married. Doesn't matter which age then the age of consent has been reached. Then there are some ex exceptions, and uh, some put it at 14, some put it at 15, 16, 17, 18, even 20 or 21. So, I mean, th there seems to be no scientific basis for it. It's just people putting arbitrary numbers here and there. And, what are you going to do and, about it? Yeah, and that is how it goes. There, there is no clear scientific method to determine the age of consent. It, it is more of an of a societal attitude, which plays in any society. I mean, if I remember correctly, the Finnish criminal history when it comes to age of consent, there has been times when it has been considered that it should be lowered in Finland to 15, and mm -hmm. it has been been kept on 16, and, and those instances kind of showcase that age of consent is more than being something that is derived from hard facts, hard data and science, it is something that is more of an, a societal moral code. Like, we, for moral reasons, something that is not purely scientific, we put it on 16. And I, I of course, being Finnish, and having lived in the Finnish kind of a moral system, I, I, of course... To me, age of consent kind of a unknowingly and subconsciously has been set to 16. When I talk about age of consent, I kind of automatically talk about 16. Because to me, that is what I've been raised up with. And that is how I subconsciously even recognize the whole age of consent. When you bring up the word age of consent, I, I don't at first even acknowledge that it is a moving number. I don't even remember that, yeah, in parts of Europe it has been set to 14. And I 
am willing and ready to, you know, stick with the 16. Honestly, I I was kind of oblivious about the whole thing, how these <laughs> things go. And I've been just kind of living myself with the with the number 18 that okay after 18 it's it's fine to go ahead with these devilish bedtime moments but i mean i understand that some gay some of the gay community as well would be you know, kind of worried what kind of a signal this film is sending because it could be used as a you know a weapon against the whole rainbow community so to speak it could be it could be transformed into a form where someone might make make the statement that it is basically or okay community has and still is every now and then being accused of promoting pedophilia and yep. yeah obviously that being accused of something like that creates uh, anxieties which might kind of make you a bit worried about films like, for example, Call Me By Your Name, and worried about what kind of an image those films could give about gay community. Maybe it should be pushed forward as well that the guy who wrote the novel is from Egypt, and once again coming from a different kind of a cultural setting, which might affect his way of putting together the entire book and choosing the age of 17 and 24 for the characters and not really giving a second thought to it whereas in Europe it could be like a much bigger deal but also there is the fact that Elio obviously is extremely I would say really mature well he he reads a lot and knows a lot and also Oliver says to him is there anything that you don't know and that kind of i guess tries to make it okay that they are approaching each other but i'm not sure if that's the case or if that's just something that they discuss and the film doesn't even or the book doesn't even think about the age difference too much ah. well the, the film at least doesn't highlight the age difference I would I would say at all. Well, there is the fact that they are at the piazza and Oliver says to Elio that we can't talk about such things. So that, then yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of things you could you could read into this of course. You could read that okay, it's the uh, it's 1984 and they need to be very conservative so to speak what what they're going to show publicly about. So, I think yeah. Yeah, especially seeing how they both come from religious cultures. In a sense that Italia is a Catholic country in itself, and the characters themselves are Jewish. So there is the religious background behind both of them. Yeah, exactly. And it's not much of a plot point in in the film, but if you're really quick and you notice the, the cross or, or, or the symbol on the uh, that Oliver is wearing... And they actually do discuss about that this symbol later on when the uh, foot massage is happening. But it's kind of a smaller point than, than in the book. But there is the Jewishness. Uh, but okay, so there is the kind of a maturity level of Ilya that we have to take into account. The maturity and the age are the only things that I think matter. And that you have reached at least the fucking puberty, at least, you know. And... Uh, 
But at the end of the day, does it matter how much, how mature you are mentally, if you are still a virgin and you're 17? <laughs> well, I I would say it 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 kind of matters, yeah. But he but he's not a virgin actually, because the movie goddamn starts with the scene where is it Marcia or the other girl that. Uh, Elio is having fun with, so Elio is not a stranger to sex, so there's also that. But this is still his first love with Oliver, clearly. So, uh, I don't even know, this is really complicated for me to process, even still after watching the film and reading the goddamn book. But I would say that the book makes an even a bigger deal about the, like, the equal intelligence level of both of these characters. So in that sense, they are on the level playing field. But they're still the age, if you want to uh, be tied down with it. For me, coming from simply seeing the film and and not reading the book, I wasn't that troubled by the age difference of the characters. What I found kind of more troubling was the visible age difference between the actors. And more precisely, the fact that Timothée looks something like like seventeen, mm. and Army looks looks thirty. So even though the age difference between the characters might not be that high, the the age difference that you perceive, well, from the actors, how how old the actors look like throughout the film, I I would say that to me that was a maybe a bigger problem in the yeah. film. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't deny that it's, I don't know if unfortunate is the word to use, that the age difference seems bigger than it kind of actually is. And if you're talking about the actors themselves, there is no really problem at all. Like 21 and 30. I mean, that's that's fine. Maybe we should also bring to the table the fact that uh, how many times have we seen this in straight films? Maybe seeing this type of age, age difference is not, not something that you see very commonly anywhere, but... Uh... It is, and it kind of is not. Like, usually it's not called into question in films. Yeah. And usually in, in most of the films, there is extremely a lot of makeup to use to kind of uh, to smooth this over. But you, you, can, you can kind of take... Any modern Tom Cruise action flick and take a look at the IMDB pages and check out Tom's age and the male-female lead's age, especially if they have uh, romantic chemistry throughout the film. And that might lead you into some pretty icky waters. Yeah, Tom Cruise is in exceptional physical health. He... Well, actually, in, in Tom Cruise's exceptional physical health, uh, <clears throat> Hollywood kind of got caught, like, what was it, like, three or four years ago, about the fact that they use extremely a lot of CGI to, yeah. to, to smooth the physical age of its actors. Poor like, there, there is a lot God. of pixels in Tom Cruise's apps, let me tell ya. you. You have an action movie that has, like, budget of 150 million you, you can kind of make the case that at least 30 million of that has gone into tom cruise's apps <laughs> uh, then we have the 
one of the most memorable shots of the entire film i would say after the phone call at the train station at 1:54, elliot is completely heartbroken and completely open about this to his mother and this makes me question extremely like how can the father come into the conclusion that the mother doesn't know are you fucking kidding me of course she knows i i took it that father is at the moment talking about a past love of his well like that that comment ties into the father kind of a, into father telling ilio about how he can relate to the pain that ilio feels at the moment and and how, how there is something beautiful still in that pain and ilio should kind of appreciate that pain and in doing so the father kind of suggests that he has felt the exact same emotions at some point of his life but but the father makes the exact opposite point that he says that he never had something like something like elio and oliver had this summer not necessarily exact the same but he too may still have you know that that first love and most likely has that first love somewhere since first love is kind of the major thematical point of the film and most most likely that first love to the father is also someone else than is Elio's mother. Okay, never saw it that way. Yeah, that that was my reading. I didn't get it from the book and I didn't get it from the film. Yeah, that that's what how I took it because the film makes it very clear that both of the parents are aware of Elio's and Oliver's feelings towards each other. They even kind of openly discuss about it between themselves. Yeah, makes for an interesting scene in that sense. I also felt that it was kind of coming from somewhere. Like why or how would the dad relate so much to Elio or understand him so well in this situation? I found it kind of peculiar. Yeah, and I kind of uh, was seeing some hurt and some some longing and some pain in the father's eyes when he gives Elio that speech at the end. And I kind of felt that this was the most emotional scene uh, of the entire film at the end of the day. Like he, he really could have not explained it in any way better than what he gives right here. No, and he uh, couldn't. That really is a moment where Michael kind of comes with full force when it comes to acting wise in the in this film and where you really see why exactly he is a name stay in hollywood films yeah it's very exceptional scene in the film because it's kind of the only shared like a personal scene with between both of these two characters and it works so amazingly well and it, it is the most emotional scene that the father has been given throughout the film and Michael really does you know use that moment which is given to him in this film he truly does he truly does uh, it's it's really amazing to have somebody like this in somebody's life that is so easy to talk to like that like once again reflecting on on my own life I'd never really had somebody like this so it hit me quite hard to be honest but I don't get that feeling that he would have had these experiences. Maybe he's just a smart professor. Who knows? That's kind of exactly the way he 
explains it ex- exactly how uh, how f- first love kind of feels, Henrik. It doesn't matter if they went away for forever, but I mean physically, but they went away anyway. And what's there's not much difference. I guess not. Then it's the Hanukkah. In the book, Oliver comes to have the Hanukkah holidays with the family, visiting once again after six months. And kind of explaining or discussing things out with uh, Elio. And here, here it's just a phone call. I, I didn't really even remember how the phone call ends. I mean, in my head, I was playing back that does it really go like this? That he just ends the phone call with later. <laughs> but uh, no, it's not that harsh. Although it 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 is harsh. Oliver is kind of a kind of an asshole, isn't he? I don't know if he's an asshole. From the two, he is the more. He's kind of the one who has a bigger distance to the thing between them. Like he he is more divorced from the situation and and even even from the feelings between the two. But I I don't know if he's necessarily an asshole. When it comes to the book, it kind of tries to give you the uh, implication that both of them are on the same level in every way and they care about themselves equally much but it seems that Oliver is already forgetting some of the things that they did have during the 1983 summer and these are still some small details that Elio does recall himself so that made me question if Oliver is really banking enough on this relationship as Elio was or or putting it in Emotionally putting enough, as much energy as Elio is putting in. And I don't know, at the end of the day, he is the guy who lives with the train, leaves him to his own devices, fucking gets married and pumps up two kids. So I don't know. Uh, I, I, on my end, I didn't read too much in, in that. I, um, I, I simply took it as, you know, the life going on. And there being something new behind the corner for Oliver. So you're saying that it was important for Oliver, but he also could kind of set his mental boundaries that this is where it's going to end and we cannot work it work it out. Don't you think that in the ideal situation Oliver would have just say, stayed in Italy, but he doesn't? I Well, in ideal situation, yeah, but I also don't kind of see how Oliver could have stayed in Italy. Because he still had yeah. kind of a commitments outside. Like the whole thing was that he was supposed to return back home after the summer. And basically the whole life and everything he had outside of Italy was had prepared itself and built itself around as such that Oliver will return after the summer. Like, you, you can't simply, you know, abandon your old life, or you can do that, but it's not an easy process. It's not something that you can you can do that easily. And yeah. not necessarily in this situation. Not when the, basically, o- only thing that would await you in Italy would be your, well, your summer love. I know, that's probably how Oliver was putting it in his head, that this is 
the duration of the relationship that it's going to be and that's it even though he greatly respects Ilio but he doesn't see it continuing it's a it's a tricky one and it's uh, the film finishes after the kind of a cold phone call just informing Ilio that his dream is kind of finally over and it has this close-up of Ilio by the fireside during Hanukkah and while the family is preparing the dinner and just holding this close-up for i don't know two minutes it's great it is it's it's most definitely a great way to end a film especially a film of this sort like i i wish that movies would do this more often instead of simply cutting into a black screen and letting the credits roll by because this this way kind of the film keeps on telling the story and lets you savor the moment to the end instead yeah. of simply cutting out. I think at the end of the day, this film is a, quite a great celebration or showcase of how it really doesn't doesn't really matter who was your first love. Was it a girl or a boy or something in between? Like everybody, hopefully, had their first love, and I think this is how it feels like or could feel like. And maybe this is the most Uncle Boon me that he, that you get in this film, this final shot. <laughs> I I now that you say it out loud, I I would say that this is the most Uncle Boon me you can get. Yeah, Magdi Prom's favorite shot, of course. Yeah, <laughs> you you had you had to wait for over two hours, but you got your chance, and goddamn used it. Is it the servant or the mother who calls Elio back to the table or to help and then the movie ends? I, I guess that's mother. Yeah. And yeah, it is. It is the mother. And, and that's the film. That's the film. Favorite performance? Believe it or not, but I'm going with Army Hammer. Mm? E- okay. even, e- yeah, e- even though Timothy would be kind of a more obvious and more easy pick. They both did extremely good work throughout the film. Magnificent performances all the way. Yeah. And, well, Timothy did get more screen time. He did get more scenes where to play out. But I I would say Army really grabs on the scenes that are given to him. And I would say that he really, he takes all from those moments that are given to him. And goddamn, I I can see Arnie trying so hard and to get the full effect whenever he's on screen, and I really do appreciate that. This is this is most definitely, I would say, this is best Army Hammer you can get. Like this is acting for his money's worth. Mm-hmm. No, no argument. Even though I would say that his character is kind of this way set up as in the book that uh, he's kind of avoiding maybe of showing his emotions or being kind of shy shy shying away from showing his emotions which is kind of exemplified by this later where he just maybe he just doesn't know how to courteously escape social social situation it's just this quick later and off he goes but the moments with timothy they are uh they are really good and so is timothy and i think timothy had maybe more here to here to do in my opinion he has more of a like a range here which is not of course a proper claim to give somebody the best performance 
accolade in this podcast, but goddamn does he pull it off. So I'll just go with Timothée Chalamet. I kind of was banking on you going with Timothée. Okay, and I did. F- favorite scene? Uh, that would be Elio fucking the beach. <laughs> because it, it kind, of, kind of a... It does capture all the awkwardness and all the uncomfortability that comes with, you know, you getting caught, as Elio gets in the film. Oh yeah, now that you mentioned it, I remember watching it first time and just wondering that who is going to be knocking on the door at that moment. I, 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 I was actually, during the first time seeing this, I was counting on that army simply accidentally eats the peach. And I, I, I was waiting <laughs> for that moment. <laughs> and I, I'm happy that it didn't go that, that direction because Elio getting caught to Oliver and Oliver simply asking Elio that what have you been doing and getting that shot of Elio's embarrassed face was was really priceless. Yeah. Uh, favorite scene? Uh, I don't even... I don't even know. Having read the book and seen the film, I felt like I lived through these characters. Because the novel is very heartfelt. It's in fact so detailed and so real that it must be reflecting in some way the writer's own experiences. It's also... the book is very rich in its language. There's word choices and the highly detailed descriptions of how both Elia and Oliver read each other and feel for each other. And... Who knows, maybe, you know, through doing this podcast, you actually learn to find some merit in also reading not only scientific texts, but also fictional books. I mean, uh, yeah, well, I was completely shocked that I was completely involved with this book from the page one, and it just didn't let me go. It was really, really great, at least for me. And I can't even name the single one scene that would be the best scene. I simply cannot know. <sighs> it, it, yeah, it, it kind of a tell, tells me that the movie and the book has had an effect on you. Uh, you could say that, yeah. <sighs> of course, I like the final Magdi Pram shot. Let's call it like that. Well, let's just go with, with that. Favorite quote? It's from the dad's scene from the end. Our hearts and bodies are given to us only once. And before you know it, your heart's worn out. And as for your body, there comes a point when no one looks at it, much less wants to come near it. I wonder if we have reached that point, Henrik. I'm a little bit scared here. <laughs> I, I, I kind of reached <laughs> that point a decade ago. <laughs> My favorite quote is from Timothée Chalamet. <laughs> um, yeah. I've been searching for a project where I could have some sort of sexual experience with a fruit. And then this just <laughs> seemed kind of like the perfect project for me. And then Oliver commented, this was his first choice of a movie, but there were two others. But uh, yeah, that was from my interview. But I'll just go with call me by your name and I'll call you by mine. Because because this quote feels exactly like like becoming one and interchangeable. Elian Oliver don't matter. It's it's just them, and concurrently, it's this cute, kind of a unabashed play they have together. Uh, favorite kill? 
I, I, I'm starting to get the feeling that we actually should ask so, so, some of these quickies. Because, by, by God, so, some of these simply do not work whenever we are not, uh, not covering a horror film. Yeah, no comment. Carry on. No, no, no comment. For me, there is a, a, actually no smart-ass quip to actually throw in the ring. Mm, but you have to. You you have been skipping the favorite kill yourself. I haven't. I haven't. You, you have. I, 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 I self corrected myself in that same goddamn episode, <laughs> which I think is the bridge that you're referring to. That that is precisely what I'm referring to. <laughs> yeah. So so it was the corporal. So go ahead. Well, I I, I would say <laughs> that it, it is Elio's heart, which in the end gets a beating no. and a one shot kill. <laughs> No, you just didn't do that right now. I most definitely did that right now. And I was trying to avoid it. I was trying to avoid it, but you forced me. You forced my hand. <sighs> it's on you, as is the entire quick categories part of this podcast. <laughs> well, Oliver did kill Ilya's heart, but I'm not going to name that one. I'm, the film did also kill Ilya's Rips of innocence, if you will, and it's probably a good thing at his age, if that's what happened. I would say yes, and as a result, he kind of came of age, so to speak, in a brutal way. He also came into a beach, so there is that. <laughs> there, 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 there is some merit, there's some merit to the innocence, I must tell you. And you, 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 you recognize that merit the next time you actually visit your food closet. <sighs> oh my god. Aren't we something as a podcast hosting pair? <laughs> we, are, we, are, we are something. That something is not classy, but, <laughs> but we are something. Okay, vouch for that. All right. Henrik. Imagine Italy in the summer, by the seaside, piazzas, ice cream, laying on the grass reading books in the orchard, procrastinating under the shade by the pool, getting up from the bed when you want, getting food served to you in the front yard, munching food in a hurry and running back inside, and spending the rest of your holiday indoors, sweating like a Big without air conditioning and warm water because the heater is not working for the thousandth time and somehow you need to research for the next Flick Lab episode. And with that out of the way, I hope I have transferred your mind somewhere else. First image that comes to mind. It is the closing credits, Elios staring at the fireplace. Did it not see that one coming, actually? I, w- I, was, I was counting on the first image being Elio and Oliver together in some place. Yeah, for me, Elio is crying in the car when mother is taking him back home. Kind of the same thing as the ending scene, the ending shot in that way. The sentiment is is there on both of those scenes. Yes, and which image best exemplifies Call Me By Your Name? I guess that is that one scene where Elio and Oliver is are hanging together out during the night time and talking about the all, all the signals they gave to each other previously and 
and the other mist. Interesting you note that one because it's kind of a short and very quick scene in the film. But yeah, it's great. That it is, but to me it kind of was the scene that best exemplified exactly how hard it is to try to let the other know about your feelings and and that you are interested about him or her. You can't kind of come uh, directly come out and say it out loud and you usually try to give these small signals here and there. And boy oh boy are they an everlasting nightmare because most often than not no one ever is going to pick up on those signals and you are basically you are putting all your hope and counting purely on you know the fact that this time miraculously for some odd reason that other is going to pick up on your signals there is some truth to that scene that i often found lacking in most romantic films okay um it's a good point for me it would be Ilion oliver lying on the bed during the call me by your name and i'll call you by mine quote that kind of is the image for the film them together that's what came to mind and it's in the trailer as well but what took you out of call me by your name nothing really took me out it just took me a long time to get in and it was you failing the film i i would say it's me failing the film i'm extremely ready to count a lot of those problems into the fact that I simply came into the film too tired and with a wrong mindset, expecting a different type of film than I was getting. Call Me By Your Name, it's one of those films which are extremely good and something you most definitely should check out, but it is also a film that you kind of have to make the knowing decision that I am going to watch this film now and kind of a be pre-prepared to see the movie. I understand. For me, of course, it's a kind of easy to pick up this very casually, but I was completely also unprepared for how good this film was going to be. What took me out? Nothing. I can think of nothing. What pulled you in? It would be the scenes when they are bicycling back from the village and more precisely when they are at the river mm. it kind of as a <laughs> kind of as a whole pulled me in once again to pick something specific i don't know i i like all the shots at the piazza in the town center it's so vivid and alive and so summerish strongest act i guess that would be the third act even though there is no clear, you know, strong or weak act in the sense that, for example, tension or anything like that would be highlighted in any of the three acts of the film. That it is. Everything is strong, but I really like the ending. So three, an honorable mention to act two, as I enjoy watching them getting, you know, emotionally closer to each other through all the hurdles. But the most exciting moment. There really is none in the film. In my opinion, this this is kind of a... Harkening back to the comment that you kind of have to be ready to watch the film. Th- this is one where it comes to play because... I would say that this is a film that is precisely void 
of excitement. Is that a good or a bad thing? I, I would say if for this film it's a good thing because the, the film makes that decision knowingly. Instead of giving you excitement and and this way an exciting moment, it kind of gives you this all the time wallowing kind of a bittersweet atmosphere. And that is where the film goes full force. And and because it it ties itself into the into this atmosphere and delivering you that emotional experience it does not need the excitement but i w- once again it, it is something that works for this film alone i wouldn't say that this is a pattern you can easily replicate yeah this is where i would park my beach scene <laughs> It's really tense, not in a sexual way, but the fact that the he really goes through with his crazy idea of fucking the bitch. So I go with that. I, I can just hear in my head the audience laughing at that moment, giggling. Scissors of Sacrilege, would you touch this film? I'm kind of hesitant. I, I would like to state out that I would quicken the first half an hour of the film. Mm-hmm. But li- li- like I've said, at the same time, I I feel that it once again it it has been me failing the movie and not the other way around. And in that sense, maybe not touch the film. Yeah, I mean maybe in the first act, if you're going to cut something or change something, then that would probably concern the fir- first act, but. I wouldn't really touch this film because I am also kind of a slow film fan, which I would still say that this definitely is not. But if you really want to do something, maybe you could remove something related to the kitchen scene where they're talking about food, but that's like five seconds and kind of contributes to the atmosphere. So I'm not going to cut anything. Yeah, it kind of is the situation that if your film is strong enough, if you make a good enough film, in that case, you can actually accept something also from the audience and demand something from the audience. Not every film has to be easy to consume price meal. Yeah, exactly. It's a fine line you have to have to walk because depending on the film, it's extremely important that you understand the setting where you are. And the only way to capture that is to just spend a hell of a lot of time in that setting just pulling in all the atmosphere of that that setting it is one of the reasons why film is an art form because it is so goddamn hard to actually make a film that really says something and really does work exactly at the end of the day there are no rules it's depends on film to film what works you can have guidelines but still it doesn't dictate anything no, no, sticking to the guidelines does not guarantee that your film is going to be good. Yeah. And l- likewise, kind of a letting go of the rules and going the exact opposite way is not a guaranteed failure. It comes very much to the person and the persons who are making the film. You really know you're watching Call Me By Your Name when... When the side of the beach makes your <laughs> stomach turn... <laughs> you really know you're watching Call Me By Your Name when you, know, when you can finally personally kind of re- relate with a love story, honestly. Yeah, 
I mean, every time when you're going through some straight romance, you kind of have to put the extra effort to put your head into it to kind of emotionally, I guess, understand it. But here it's just so easy for me. What can I say? And given that I have still watched quite a bunch of these type of romantic films, this is by far my favorite of them, which which says a hell of a lot about the director as well. So we have come to the point in the podcast. It is podcast history where you are the one who makes the heartfelt and emotional statements about the film, and I'm the one who is shooting off the snarky comments. Like, what a time to be alive! I don't know if the roles switched then, but three adjectives to describe the film: sensual, realistic, and fragile. Hmm. Warm, loving, and brutal. Did you look at your watch? I did, during the first 45 minutes. Okay. No, no, I did not. But perhaps on my side as well, during the first viewing, which was quite some time ago now, but it takes a kind of a while to get into the whole setting, what what this film is about, perhaps. But uh, would you recommend Call Me By Your Name? I would, I would. When I started to watch the film for the first time, I was kind of prepared to not to give this one a recommendation at the end, but like I mm. said, the f- w- film did win me over as it progressed, and when the end credits rolled, I, I was certain that I would give this one a recommendation. It is very heartfelt and kind of a very sincere love story. I would say it is one of those films that best exemplifies what that first love kind of can feel. So, yeah, a glowing recommendation from me. Okay. Yeah, I think there are countless lessons you could take from the film, but in the end, to me, this film kind of boils down to the so-called jeu de vivre, joy of living way of life that the director has mentioned it's not about the fact that this relationship sort of ended it's about embracing what did take place what did happen and by this point i'm if that makes any scientific sense in this podcast i'm a huge fan of the magdi prom cinematography i'm a huge fan of the director and i'm a huge fan of all all the, the these main actors so Oh yeah, I, you could say that I would give up extremely glowing recommendation as well. But legacy, do you think this will be carrying a huge legacy, this film? I don't know. I, I can see this kind of a remaining as a highmark film in the film buff circles. Well, it, it most definitely it is trying to build a legacy at this point, seeing how the sequels are coming up but i i don't know if if this film has a legacy in the mainstream cinema it's kind of a something that is yet to be seen i would believe a lot of it in the end is going to depend on the sequel how it works out this this could be the next sunrise trilogy maybe who knows but i can't Promise it, not at this point. Yeah, it remains to be seen. There there are things that you could do. The characters are fantastic and maybe you can pull it off. Uh, but also, you know, 
already breaking the guy's heart and then carrying on and then possibly further breaking his heart. I don't know what kind of a value that will hold, but I guess we'll find out. It is with a lot of very good artistic films. The unfortunate reality is that when it comes to mainstream cinema and having legacy in there and being remembered somewhere else than than in the film buff circles which are quite small in the end and relatively quiet I must confess it really is not a fair game in the end like only a fragile number like one or two percent of those films ever get to have a legacy in the mainstream circles yeah but hey I'm I'm keeping my fingers crossed for this one Call me by your name, would and does deserve to have a legacy and to be remembered wildly. And I, I, on my end, I do hope that this film does reach that. That's quite something to be heard from a straight cis male. Or maybe not, as I have pointed out countless times here. It's a love story, plain and simple. Well, with yeah, some additional spice in it. Yeah, but you know, even if you would take it as a gay love story and you would credit it as such, I wouldn't see how that would in any way kind of devalue the film's importance and its right to exist and have a legacy. So now that we have actually covered very heartfelt and extremely good movie, what is our next pick? Are we going to once again watch some complete trash? <laughs> well, it re- remains to be seen. It says Stray Dogs from Taiwan from 2013. So we're going to continue with our international cinema challenge. And if you haven't yet joined the program, then what are you doing listening to this podcast? Get watching these films. You know, you are part of this thing now. So start from the beginning. It would be apocalypse now for you. And kindly watch 20 films from 20 different countries. If you don't want to watch the films that we're watching, then watch 20 different films from 20 different countries of your own choosing. And we'll see you at the end of the year in January 2020, most probably. And you can join the podcast as our guest and tell about your experience. Or if you don't want to, you don't have to. But, you know, if you want to. Yeah, the door's open. Yeah, life is full of choices. And I hope, just like Elio, you will have the courage to to tell about your feelings. Tell about your feelings of this challenge. In this podcast, which can be found on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube, all the deepest levels of hell are waiting you on your cell phone. And as mentioned, next week we will go into the world of stray dogs from Taiwan. I hope you will have your mind open even further and uh, travel with us to Taiwan. Later! Later! Guadagnino Guadagnino Kato, miten toi lausutaan, toi jatkan nimi. Ilio, Oliver helps him to... No, en minä... The statue spitting the god mother water.